or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're here for another exciting episode of The Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. So this episode will actually be released the day before Thanksgiving in the U.S., and it's a pretty big festive celebration. It's all about family, togetherness, thankfulness, and of course, food. I do want to use this time to share a little bit about what I'm thankful for this year. One is for you guys, my listeners, actually caring about this platform that I built and started, you know, supporting me and tuning in week after week to learn a little bit more about the world and migration. I'm actually astounded at the listen so far and just hoping that I can take this thing further and really, you know, get more downloads and really reach more people. I'm also thankful for my siblings just for being great resources for me and continuing to be beacons just for development because they're pretty great like if you guys think i'm an overachiever and extra just no i've had them in front of me my whole life and have all they've also offered me some sense of comfort and laughter in our group chat i'm also just thankful to be employed by a great company that's kept me with the job through these uncertain times and allows me to work from home it gives me the work-life balance to start a podcast i just i know that hasn't been the reality for everybody with that said, I'm pretty excited for this Thanksgiving. I'm cooking a few things for the first time, and that's mostly because I'm stuck here in Boston and all of my family lives in New York. And you know, global pandemic. So I will be going to a Friendsgiving on Thanksgiving, so I guess it's just Thanksgiving, but <laughs> it's gonna keep the Friendsgiving brand. I feel like that's just like a 20s thing to do. And yeah, I'll be trying to replicate the greatness of my family dishes, so wish me some luck there. I have some big shoes to fill. But I think I'm a pretty good chef. I'm gonna pat myself on the back for that one, but I know, like, cooking's pretty intuitive. You just gotta follow the recipe and, you know, season your shit. This is actually the second time I have been without my family for Thanksgiving. The first was actually when I was with the guest for this episode, when I was studying abroad in South America. Yes, yes, for first-time listeners, I studied abroad, and since I did, I have to mention it 86,000 times. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the only time I missed Thanksgiving. That was much more homesick because you can't exactly get your fix of jerk chicken, you know, mac and cheese, sweet potato pie when you're in Santiago de Chile. Try to try a little harder, try to find it, try to make it. But, you know, I wasn't about that back then. I'm still barely about it now. But yeah, our guest this week was one of my classmates, Ruthie, who had a very interesting past, which we will dive into later. She considers her home the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, which has a very, very interesting relationship with migration. Which provides us with the perfect transition for the migration education. This is the part of the show where I provide a quick burst of information related to migration and the country that we're discussing today. The UAE. Yes, the home of Dubai. But Dubai is not the country, even though that's probably what everyone knows. But there are other cities in the UAE, like Sharjah, for example. It, it exists. It's not, it's not just Dubai. But from my understanding, it is a whole lot of desert. <laughs> desert and buildings. So actually, the UAE is a country with some high needs for labor, so a majority of their workforce are actually migrant workers and expats. And there is a distinction between those terms, so pay attention closely during the interview as Shruti gives her perspective on it and dives into that distinction a little bit more, but we can also cover that. We also cover that a little bit in this segment. Actually, in the UAE, immigrants make up a whopping 88% of the total population. Some of the pull factors that draw people to the UAE is their economic attractiveness. It's just you know, a powerhouse in the region economically, and there is some great public infrastructure that is developed currently. There's also a very clear and defined system to get jobs, and there is a crucial need for people, and often in these situations, housing support is provided in some way so that it also provides more incentive. It's actually very common in this region of the world. So this region is referred to as the GCC region, which 
They enter the Gulf Cooperation Council. And it includes countries like the UAE, but also countries like Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. So these programs are very crucial for individuals from countries that have limited economic and employment opportunities. They can work in these GCC countries and remit money back home that is crucial for their family members living there, but also build a life for themselves because the, the economic opportunity is just more. So this specific program, the UAE, was launched in 1971. It was known as the Kafala Sponsorship Program, and it's still the system that they go through by today. So the goal of the program overall is to sustain high level of economic growth that the country had seen and to continue to foster the high cost of living that they had created with all its wealth. So it created an interesting problem as they also had to address the needs of all the migrants in their country, but they also wanted to ensure that their local citizens, their local citizens the Emirati, had you know access to the economy and access to different opportunities. So they attracted workers that could be categorized as both low-skilled and high-skilled. These quote-unquote lower and semi-skilled workers were mainly immigrants from, you know, from regions like Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, while typically workers from Western countries like the United States, Australia, Canada, the UK, they tend to be more concentrated in the UAE's high-skilled sectors like the oil and the gas industry, as well as banking and finance. Those are all key, you know, key high money-making industries in the UAE. But there's also another group of workers. There are domestic workers who mostly come from Asian countries. And a crucial thing to note about them is that they fall under the authority of the Ministry of the Interior and most of the time, they live internally with their host families, and their housing situation is done through who, you know, who they stay with, who they're partnered with. So while other foreign workers through the Kafala program often fall under the Ministry of Labor and thus have to adhere to national labor laws and, in general, have a little more oversight, the domestic workers, unfortunately, are not afforded this opportunity. Now, with all of this said, it's not a perfect system, and there are definitely challenges for these migrants especially if they fall under the unskilled category, and even more crucial if they fall under the domestic worker category. Shruti touches on this a little bit more, and it's actually a perfect transition as we get to the interview. So like I said before, I met Shruti while studying abroad, and I was in awe of just the upbringing that she had and her international perspective on life. As somebody who's lived in the Northeast for their entire life, I was just impressed by the experiences that she had, and all the stamps in her passport and the different types of people that she could meet. Well, New York City is pretty diverse. I don't think I've had the experience that she's had. So she's lived and studied on four different continents, or maybe five. I could, I could be losing count. She's probably going to make it even more in her career. And this was a pretty fun conversation because Shruti, she studied international relations. She's sort of, you know, into topics like this. So we had a fun little back and forth. So without further ado... Here with me today, I have Shruti, yet another classmate from my study abroad program in South America. She's also quite a global citizen herself, having lived on damn near every continent. Also a graduate of Wheaton College in Massachusetts and currently in law school at the University of Melbourne. How are you today, Shruti? I'm very well, thank you, Aiden. I'm excited to catch up and excited to have you on and you know, speak about your journey a little more. I know you've had quite the migration story. You've lived in quite a few countries and quite some major countries, so I'm excited to get your perspective. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you for having me here. Of course. So, you've lived literally all over the world, so let's just start simple. Like, Where were you born and then where you currently live? So, I was born in India. Um, I'm from the south of India, Chennai, and I currently live in Dubai, but I'm studying in Melbourne. 
Right, and then can you try to take us through a brief <laughs> timeline of all your residences? Because I know, I, I think it's pretty cool how you've grown up. Like, I'm sure there are some caveats which we will get into, but just like a brief overly, overview. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I was born, born in South India, Chennai. And then when I was like nine months old, we moved to China. I lived in Beijing and Shanghai from 1998 to like 2002. And then after that, we moved back to Chennai, India for a bit. And then in 2004, we moved to Dubai, UAE. And I've pretty much called Dubai home uh, from 2004 to 2015 when I moved to the US to get my undergraduate degree from Wheaton College. That's where uh, I met you, Aiden, during the study abroad time in South America. And then after graduating from the US, in 2019, I started law school in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, Melbourne Law School. All right. So, obviously, you're pretty young when all of this happened. So, I was like, is the is like the UAE the only one that you have memories from, like just growing up in Dubai? Um, I would say I have like a smattering of memories from everywhere I think like I have a few distinct memories of my time in China and then the short little two years that I spent back in India it was honestly quite traumatic (laughs) for me so I do remember that a bit Uh, and of course Dubai yeah I remember very much all of my growing up here okay so you said the word traumatic can we get into that a little Yeah, I did say that, like, I just dropped that in there. No, I think it was because when I, um, yeah, so when I was in China for those, oh, I think it was like five years or something, I can't really do the math, but uh, when I moved back to India, it was like, it was like this weird reverse culture shock, like, I am Indian, and I can speak the language, and I'm, I look super Indian, but I had just spent so much time in China that when I had come back, and started school at this local Indian school, I was just, yeah, just like a fish out of water. It was really bad. You know, I can imagine that'd be very difficult at a very young age. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't know. Can I ask, like, did you feel, I always find the idea of reverse culture shock really different, uh, really interesting. Didn't you, did you ever find yourself having a reverse culture shock? Like after we studied abroad and went back to our universities or went back to home, did you ever find that as well? Yeah, I think not so majorly because I, I guess we weren't in one place a long time and we were, you know, kind of in our bubble. And admittedly, my Spanish was pretty awful. So <laughs> I guess like there was still a degree of it sort of landing back in the States, being in the airport for the first time. You know, you're hearing English. You're like, what's going on? I was just, you know, in this other environment on my own, sort of in the hustle and bustle of you know, this big city, and now I'm back home. It, it, it is just kind of weird. You just you just sort of kind of adjust back to things that I can't imagine doing it after, you know, years and years and years, especially back to a country that's kind of mine, but not really mine. <laughs> I guess one thing that can be considered kind of reverse culture shocky, if you remember, is how they're just very hypervigilant, like the staff about our safety and just keeping holding on to our phones and the pickpockets and, you know, carrying your backpack in front of you. And I definitely, you know, wanted to, you know, kangaroo my backpack a few times, but it's not really that necessary. There's not, not as many pickpockets here. Mm. Yeah. So off of that, like in your head, you know, you're growing up all these different countries, which is just like a mix of languages. Like, 
did you got did you mostly speak English at home, English in school, or use like a mix of like local cult- languages, your culture language? Uh, yeah. So I spoke. Um, it's been pretty. It's been predominantly English my entire life, and but I do speak Tamil. So there would be like some weird sort of tanglish happening at home, or just like my accent would change. So like I might speak the same language English, but the way I speak English would change depending on where I am. Yeah, I, I've noticed that now. I'm just like, should should you don't sound the same? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm no longer in the U.S., so I'm not around any of my Boston friends anymore. So I think my R's have changed. The way I pronounce my T's sure have. Yeah. And I I, I can't place the accent, but it's like, okay, shoot, you're you're very international. Yeah, I think a lot. Some of my friends we call it like the Dubai much accent because there are just like so many accents going around here. Dubai is quite a a multicultural city that I guess like as the ads try to place Dubai. So I guess my accent is based on that. But honestly, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> it's actually a perfect lead into my next question. So I actually oh, did great. want to acknowledge that about the UAE, United Arab Emirates. It's a very migrant-heavy country in the you know, the local Emirati population isn't very prominent. It's like very expat-driven country. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, UAE is currently like less than 10% Emiratis. That's the local Emir- uh, local population. And then the rest of the country is mostly expats um, or migrants. And of that, let's... Okay, so if you think of that as like 90%, for example... A good majority of that are South Asians and mostly coming from like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. So then sort of off of that, what is it like in Dubai? Is like is ethnic, ethnicity and citizenship like monitored very closely or like not really at all? Like do people just consider themselves like I live in Dubai, this is just what it is, or are people very tied to their citizenship? Oh, that's a good question. I would say people are quite tied to their citizenship because uh, unlike in the U.S. where you can consider yourself, uh, you can become a citizen of the U.S., right? Uh, You can go through that whole naturalizing process. There's nothing like that here in the UAE. So you're pretty much... um, you're pretty much just a resident of this country, but you hold on to your original citizenship. And in a case like that, then you are quite tied to your original nationality. And then sometimes you can see lines being drawn based on that. So a lot of communities here in Dubai are based on like, oh, just the Indian population hangs out. Or there's a huge, I think, Irish population here as well. So that's quite a close-knit community. Um, there's a good a, there's a good English population here as well, and they hang out. So I would say that it is definitely tied to ethnic and nationality lines. All right, definitely makes sense. So tying in your citizenship, being an Indian citizen, don't want to bring up a bad memory, but <laughs> I remember when we were abroad on the trip to Uruguay, you couldn't go just because of visa restrictions and like the length of the trip. But was that like a common issue you run into or like not really? Like how, how does the Indian passport work in the grand scheme of things? Um, look, the Indian passport is not a hot commodity. No one... <laughs> No one's really scrambling to get one, like the US or the UK passport. And yeah, I think a a lot of the reason is because it's not super powerful. Like you don't get, um, what is it, a visa upon arrival 
very easily or, or if you do it's like to very select countries like i i couldn't get it into uruguay but i was able to get it into peru because india and peru had just gotten into some kind of treaty thing um so yeah i mean i guess yeah i guess being indian like having it having that passport it's quite a powerful south asian passport but it's not very powerful globally compared to other countries for sure makes sense I feel like with, at least with India and you have like a big diaspora. I'm sure in every country you've been in, there's been like a sizable like Indian diaspora to interact with. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think a running joke with me and my friends is that if you go anywhere, you'll definitely see an Indian somewhere. Um, I remember when I was in Argentina, I was on the train station with, you know, our mutual friend, Robert Nisha, and we were waiting for the train to come. And then I swear to God, I heard someone speak Tamil on the train and I almost lost my shit because I hadn't, at that point, I hadn't heard someone speak Tamil to me except my mom on a Skype call for so many months and my head whipped around so fast and I saw these two men, I think they were like coming back from work or something and they were just chatting away in Tamil super loudly because they knew that nobody could understand them and I was like, ah, yes, that's that's an Indian move. I love that. And I'm sure it's like it was much more distinct amongst all the Spanish, and like it probably like stuck out very well. Oh yeah, certainly. So shifting over to your college experience, you went you went to Wheaton, which is here in Massachusetts. But was university abroad, like specifically United States, your goal, or were you just looking abroad for college opportunities in general, or did things just kind of work out? Hmm. I would say it was a little bit of everything. Um, I always. I really liked the liberal arts model that the U.S. had, and I had been deciding between the U.S. and the U.K. at that point. So, yeah, so I guess when it came down to it, I chose the U.S. for its liberal arts schools, and then Wheaton came up with a pretty sizable scholarship, and that's kind of how I ended up choosing Wheaton. Was there another part to that question? Am I missing something? That, that was the main part of the question, but I did have a follow-up about it, so the U.S. versus U.K., I guess, was there anything that specifically made those two countries be in the forefront? I guess, was it solely the scholarship that made you sort of go towards the U.S., or were there any other factors? I, I mean, you mentioned the liberal arts college model, but... Yeah, I think I just ended up choosing the U.S., because I, so, at least here in Dubai, there was very much that sort of attitude that U.S. universities you you go to those universities for like a much more nurturing environment than what the UK might offer. Uh, I don't know if that ended up being true or not, but that was at least the attitude <laughs> that all of my college counselors had in Dubai. Um, and yeah, so I just kind of fell for that. And to some extent it was true. I mean, Wheaton has made me the nerd that I am today. So I have, I have Wheaton to thank for that. That's the vibe I've gotten from a lot of people on this podcast about the American education system. Oh, really? Okay, good, good. You know, there's some other other people thought it was you know quite nerds, quite quite handholdy. Did that? So, did your international life, you know, your global experiences, did that directly sort of drive your major in international relations, or were there sort of other things that were in your forefront when you got to school? I think it definitely informed my decision to get into IR, but. Um, I was, I did kind of flirt with the idea of anthropology for a while. I liked the idea of studying different cultures and stuff like that, but the anthropology department in my school wasn't too great, so I just ended up choosing mm. IR. Like, honestly, like, 
if I could go back in time to do Wheaton all over again, I think I might choose a different major, very honestly. But IR was great. Like, it made a lot of sense considering my international student experience and my, like, interest in political science and history and stuff. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those fields that, like, they cross, like, disciplinary enough that you can take a little bit of everything, but... Yeah. Wait, what did you major in again? Uh, business administration. Babson only has the one major, but you can, like, choose your, your concentrations. Ah, like, it's one of okay. mine was, like, social and cultural studies, which is, like, it's most closely tied to, like, American studies at, like, a, a liberal arts school. Ooh. Very cool. So that brings us to current day. You know, you you took your educational journey to the next level, and you're currently enrolled in law school. So I want to ask, what drove you specifically to law school, and then on top of that, why law school in Australia? Ah, uh, yes, that's a question that I've been getting a lot recently, <laughs> and I think it is kind of an odd departure because a lot of people expected me to just try to stick around in the U.S. But okay, so I can answer this question in two parts, which is. Um, my decision to go to Australia was pretty simple. Like I knew after the four years of staying in the U.S., I didn't really want to live there anymore, and I didn't, um, I didn't want to pursue my masters there because uh, it seemed a little, it seemed quite expensive, especially if it wasn't like a fully funded PhD program or something. So that was a more kind of pragmatic reason, um, and then. I decided to, I've kind of always wanted to be a lawyer, um, I've always found, I've, like, ideas of being a lawyer I was, have always sounded kind of attractive to me since I was like, what, 13 or 14 or something, so I just had to look for the best school outside of the US that would let me study this at a postgraduate level. So Australia was one of them. I also have a lot of family in Australia, so that also kind of helped the decision. Okay. And I think that's something that I've noticed in a good number of my decisions is that I've never really been bound to the country per se. It's usually been the institutions or the people in the country that have kept me around. So I really just chose Australia for Melbourne Law School more than Australia itself, if that makes sense. Okay, that definitely makes sense. So I don't want to get into the family aspect. You've mentioned, you know, you have some family in Australia. You've moved around so much. So is migration very common in your family and your, in your culture? I would say migration is quite common in my family. I think my family particularly has moved around the most. But I do have, yeah, usually it's sort of like if you go to any country, there's a good chance that we have some distant relative in some part of that place that we're visiting. Um, I don't know if it's like common in our culture though. That's kind of that's kind of a tricky one. I guess I guess so, but it's kind of hard for me to explain that. I don't know. Would you say that in your family is migration? Is that something that your family does? Is that in your culture? I mean, I'd say. In- I mean, not consistently, but a lot of my family did move to the United States for more opportunity on both my mom mm-hmm. and dad's side. So it was definitely something that's part of it. And some of them, you know, consider going back quite frequently, especially with, you know, what's been going on in the United States. But I think that's always, I think that link to your home country is always kind of there, especially if it's only sort of one and two and they're not too far from each other. Like the, Jamaica's right there in context of the United States. So it's only like a three hour flight. So I think there's like a different dimension to it. 
Yeah, I guess similar to that then, my family would, yeah, all of our moves have always been in this, in, you know, like seeking better opportunities in another country or something like that. And, but it's always, at least for my parents, I know that it's not really uh, with the mindset of like, oh, I want to move to this country because I want to leave India. I think they do see themselves moving back to India after they retire and things like that. So I guess it's like one foot in another country, but one foot back at home. So going back to your law school decision, so you know, obviously laws are localized. So would you have to sort of practice law in Australia if you do have that degree? Or is it like a law experience that can be applied globally? Yeah, so my law school experience has been definitely more Australia-based. So I like studied constitutional law of Australia. But because it's... Uh, Commonwealth country, common law country, not a commonwealth, common law country, um, it has a lot of, it like, there's a good overlap with like UK and the US. So if I do want to like practice in another country somewhere down the road, um, it shouldn't be too difficult, is what I, my, is what the university is telling me at least. I don't know how much of that is going to be true, but <laughs> let's see. That makes sense. And, and can you just explain for the viewers a bit what common law means so that I don't really know? Oh yeah, so common law is the type of law that came from the UK. It's it's usually there are two types of law in in the world, I guess. There's common law and civil law. So common law is practiced by the UK, Australia, the US practices it. It's just it's just the way that the court system is sort of set up. And then contrast that with civil law countries like China and India. Um, that has a different court system where I think there's there's no jury or something like that. And it's not based okay. on like cases, it's based on just legislation. All right, that makes sense. So when preparing for this move to Australia and your move to the United States, you, you, know, you were a little older, so you had a little more control. So do you remember sort of what you did to prepare, sort of how you were feeling, what you had to leave behind each time? So I, when preparing for the US, I think, it was sort of hard to prepare for, especially the yeah, especially my U.S. jump because I had only heard about what U.S. universities were like, and it's it, there was sort of like this image of like U.S. universities are this place of like academic rigor, but like also a lot of fun, and you get to like chat with your professors during lunchtime and things like that. It was mm -hmm. it was just so different from what anything that I had experienced here in Dubai. So I try to prepare by talking to some seniors and things like that but there wasn't really much that i could do i left behind yeah i mean i left behind the comfort of dubai and everything that i knew over here so yeah but i mean to be very honest like i just kind of jumped um for both australia and the us i just kind of jumped and then hoped that i could swim through whatever came at me and it worked out i guess but it was definitely a little challenging all right, so obviously as an undergrad, like you're, you're living on campus, is a little more, you know, hand-holding and helping with the transition, but I guess how was it getting set up in each country? Did you have like an orientation? How quickly did you take personally to sort of adjust to the sort of the local culture in both the United States and in Australia? I think in the U.S., yeah, in the U.S. it was definitely more structured because they had like, you know, those pre-orientation programs for international students. So I just... I was just able to kind of go along with the flow of what Wheaton said and 
get to know people through that. Um, orienting myself in Australia was hard. This was the beginning of 2020, and that was because it was a graduate program. I had to find myself an apartment, even though I did have family there, like my own brother lives in Melbourne. It was still kind of hard because it was I was living in the middle of Melbourne, so it was quite a busy city. So that orienting myself there was definitely a lot more challenging and, and took a lot longer to get used to. You're older. It's a lot. Like get, doing things like getting an apartment, you don't realize all the different little things that come with that, especially that change from country to country. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember like even when we moved to Argentina and Chile, like when we were living in those two big cities, Buenos Aires and Santiago, a lot of the stuff was just done for us. We didn't really have to do much of the planning <laughs> ourselves. You know, that was very nice. It was very nice. Yeah. I mean, they even like literally handed us our train cards. Like, here you go, take the metro. Oh my God, true. Yeah, like someone picked us up from the airport and dropped us home. That You can't get anything better than that. It was literally amazing. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask, how was it sort of getting, you know, finding your apartment in Melbourne? Was it an easy process? Is there like a lot of bureaucracy in Australia? It wasn't too bad. I think um, there were a couple of student apartments that were particularly meant for international students who had never been to Australia before and were just trying to find a place that they could land up at. So I just chose that. I also spent a few days before moving in. I spent it at my aunt's house. So I have my aunt and uncle and my brother. Those are the three closest family members that I have living in Melbourne. So I sort of did all of that to set myself up and find a place. But yeah, I think generally finding an apartment in Melbourne isn't too hard. I think at least compared to what I've heard about New York, um, as a comparison, it's a lot easier. No, that's, that's a good note for anyone trying to move to Melbourne. So you mentioned a move in early 2020, and as we all know, shit hit the fan in the world, you know, around March, April 2020. So how long were you like actually in Australia before you know, all the COVID stuff started to happen, or was it kind of happening simultaneously? Oh my god, Aiden, I think I was like in Melbourne, like I got to experience literally just one month of Melbourne and then after that it was just lockdown Melbourne because if I remember correctly, everything hit the fan in March and I had moved in Feb, so I really just got to experience a month of it. So I guess, did, did you feel like you got a taste of Australian culture at all? Yes and no. Like in the one month that I was there, I truly think I was thriving. Like I had met so many people. I had even joined a sketch comedy group. Like I had really done the most during that time. And then, so yeah, I mean, I like tried to keep up with some of those things like once lockdown came up, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's not the same. Like I'm, I obviously wasn't experiencing like actual Australian culture. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I guess, what was the initial reaction? Did the Australian authorities react immediately? Was everything shut down? Did your school immediately go to online? Like, how did they act? Um, yeah, so everything shut down within a week. So schools, so my school said that it was going completely online. They gave us a week off for us to, like, cope with everything, which was quite nice. And then, yeah, it was a week off. Australia put its borders up to all non-citizens and residents 
so if you left the country then i couldn't come back in basically which is what is actually which is what is still happening right now and yeah and then there was an immediate lockdown for like was it three months or something yeah sounds sounds about right I, i don't know how long it was there yeah but it's i mean their response has been definitely quite impressive com- at least compared to the u.s oh my god but it's, it's been a good response you know i know <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying i'm pretty sure we're one of the worst regarded internationally yeah i mean india's right behind you so no worries <laughs> when in the lockdown did you decide sort of to go back home to dubai and i guess how was that process traveling in the midst of all of this I think I decided to go back home after my first semester of law school. So I did my entire first semester in my tiny shoebox of a studio apartment. And after I have fully lost my mind doing that, <laughs> I was like, all right, this is enough. I'm going back home. Oh, but um, actually, I forgot to mention this, but like actually when the lockdown had happened, I actually wanted to go back home to Dubai like immediately after like in march or something but mm-hmm. the uae had put its own borders up to even residents oh, so wow. so that means i was i couldn't enter i couldn't come back to the uae even if i wanted to so that's when i kind of just had to deal with the fact of um studying that semester in my room by myself but it wasn't too bad like i had a few friends my brother was around so i managed that okay and then after the semester one which ended in july or something i headed back home mm-hmm. All right, so you had quite some time in lock the lockdown Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. How how have you been managing your lockdown? Like what have you been up to this lockdown apart from work? Well, I I started a podcast. I was, I'm one of those people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's mostly honestly that's mostly it. I'm home a lot more, so I take a lot more conscious effort to be, you know, tidy up and keep up with my chores, but honestly, it's hard trying to not go not go crazy. Yeah. Thankfully I'm not locked up in a tiny studio, but my apartment's not massive. Like a yard would be nice or something, but it's like getting cold <laughs> and like dark very early now, which is you know kind of disappointing. So I, oh, I don't know what yeah. to do besides light candles and watch Netflix to be honest. <laughs> that's that's cute. I like that. Yeah, back to Australia. Is it still most like a migrant country? I know maybe a lot of like South Asian, like Pacific countries and people from those countries there, but I guess how is the diversity? How is that compared to the United States? Is there a significant Indian population relative to the United States or do you think it's like greater in the US? I think I don't know if it's I it's kind of hard to compare it to the US because Australia is just such a smaller country compared to the mm-hmm. US. but in my limited time in melbourne uh melbourne definitely gave me similar vibes like boston like in terms of diversity and just like the hustle of that city was very like was like super similar to boston um in terms of diversity i think yeah there's a strong south asian population there there's also like a strong east asian population a lot of folks i i remember meeting so many people from china and vietnam and thailand and stuff like that so that's that was a lot of fun too and yeah of course it's like a strong indigenous country too so there's a lot of indigenous folks around a, a very like loud indigenous voice especially in my law school i guess do they speak more or knowledge about their indigenous populations i guess more than the us does cuz 
I don't know, the U.S. kind of just gl- glosses over the Native population sometimes. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, Australia... Australia gets a lot of slack for not doing a good job compared to, let's say, New Zealand, for example. But mm-hmm. compared to the U.S., Australia's recognition of Indigenous people is really, really impressive. At least I was so pleasantly surprised. Like, at the beginning of um, a lot of presentations in the law school, there would always be a moment of a moment of recognition of, like, hey, we're making this presentation and we are on indigenous land. We are on the country of the Wurundjeri people, for example. And we acknowledge the, the indigenous people of like, was it uh, past, present and emerging or something. And, and it's always at the beginning of any sort of notable presentation that would always come up. And it was always, and I always found it really nice compared to the US where, yeah, it's glossed over, like you said. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm surprised that they even, like, as an American that's talking to me, that they even take the time you know, before presentations. I think that's something that, you know, can easily be adopted here. Yeah, definitely. That's an interesting tidbit about Australia. It definitely seems like, you know, interesting country. So sort of shifting from that, you've had all these different experiences in all these different countries, especially your adult experiences, you know, college in the U.S., law school in Australia. So I guess let's kind of dissect some of the experiences, some of the norms, like, are there anything, are there anything, like, I guess, first, let's compare the UAE to both the US and Australia, but are there anything that would take people by surprise, you know, from the UAE going to the US or Australia? So going from the UAE to those two countries? Yeah, like, what would shock the average person, like, from Dubai, like, stepping to the US or Australia for, for, for the first time? Oh, God, I don't know, I guess, People are a lot more friendlier in the US and Australia. So you shouldn't be surprised if like a random stranger says hi to you. Like I remember when I was in uh, Norton, which is where Wheaton is, Norton, Mass. I remember telling this to one of my friends who's who like who is from Massachusetts. And I, I came in and I was like, oh my gosh, people here are so friendly. And she told me, really, that's surprising because people from Massachusetts are known for being mass holes which that was beyond me because they were so much friendlier than some of the people I've met here in Dubai and similar in Australia too. So in Dubai, it's just like business as usual. Everyone sort of keeps it going. If they don't know you, they just kind of just continue with their life. Oh yeah, definitely. Like even my neighbors, we're not, I mean, we're friendly. We know each other and stuff, but it's not, it's, we're not like overly generous. We don't invite each other over or anything like that. COVID, COVID aside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not showing up to your door with like a casserole or something. Like in <laughs> No. <laughs> I guess like the reverse, is there anything, I guess the average person from the US or Australia that they'll be very surprised by in the UAE? Like if, if you took me to Dubai, what, what would I be shook by? Uh, that's funny. Um, what would you be surprised about if I took you here? Aiden, um, everyone drives here. I don't know if that's like a surprising thing, but <laughs> a bunch of people drive. Um, it's it's not a very walkable city. Mm-hmm. Is that surprising enough? I don't know if that's surprising enough for you, but that's a fact. <laughs> yeah, I think I, so, because like when our mutual friend Drew had gone to the UAE, he had told me that, but like I was, I don't know if I was surprised. 
just seems like a bunch of oh. desert. I, I wasn't expecting like public transit. Oh yes, wait. So let me ask you this: What is your impression of the vibe based on, you know, what Drew says and like what you've heard? So I'll say this: just to begin with, I feel like in the U.S., Dubai has this very like bougie aura. It's just very like you know, creme de la creme, like, luxury experience. I feel like that's its brand perception here, and that was always its, you know, perception of me before I went to college and, you know, met people actually from Dubai and sort of just learned more about the world. So, I I just think it's a very interesting country. I've heard multiple sides of it. It's definitely not all luxury. I know that now. But it's still somewhere that I want to go, but I think its migration link is what's interesting to me. Like having that 10% local population, but they're still so, you know, very protective of their citizenship and, you know, really trying to make their passport one of the most valuable in the world. I think that, I, know, I just think it's a very interesting country to examine. That's just like my yeah, view. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, the bougie sort of perception that Dubai pushes out there is quite intentional and but and it's there. It, it there is some truth to it. Like if you if you go to the newer parts of Dubai, you definitely do see a lot of like fancy cars and glamour like glamorous people walking around. But yeah, there's also old Dubai where there are a lot of migrant workers desperately trying to earn a livable wage. And but there's also a lot of culture in old Dubai. And I I have I've been I hang around in like both new and old Dubai depending on what I'm doing and it's always a different kind of fun uh, depending on what yeah depending on where so new Dubai and old Dubai are these just like different parts of the city like is there like a literal like gate when you go to new Dubai and old Dubai is there like a <laughs> visual distinction <laughs> <laughs> oh I should have clarified that so Dubai if you if you look at the way Dubai's the geography of Dubai and how it's structured it's really just a long line so um, on one end of the city, so it's like a yeah, it's a long line. So on one end of the city is old Dubai, and then as the city has urbanized even more, it's sort of just like gone down, um, gone down the line, and become even fancier. So there's no gate or anything like that, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty stark difference. Like you know when you're you've entered new Dubai, and when you've entered old Dubai. So when, when you see the Burj Khalifa, you know you're in New Dubai? Oh, certainly, yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to like an earlier comment that you had made, kind of like distinction between like an expat and like a migrant workers in the UAE and you know, like the ones not working in like, you know, for the higher corporation job, not, you know, making those $100,000 or more salaries. Like, are they kind of hidden? Are they just tucked away in old Dubai? Like, like what's that experience like, like from your knowledge? Yeah, so I'm glad you caught that. So yeah, I think the distinction between expat and migrant workers is just based on socioeconomic level. Because if I understand things correctly, an expat is under the same sort of employment visa as a migrant worker is. Uh, you might have to fact check that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. But it's just like the kind of job that they're doing. So migrant workers usually in construction or something, and an expat workers usually doing like a fancy management job or something and migrant workers aren't really tucked away in old Dubai it's, but like with the way the city with the way the city treats them and like where they reside because so usually migrant workers 
they stay in these labor camps that are like further out in the old part of the city. So because of things like that and because of like a bad reputation of not treating these workers right and holding on to their passports and things like that, they def the city definitely did get the reputation of trying to hide the migrant workers. Wait, you said labor camps and holding their passports. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely an issue. I, I, I honestly don't know if it's still an issue because I remember like the UN came out with like a really scathing report about how that's against you know human rights and things like that. But yeah, so when usually how it works is like a large construction company will um, will try to hire a, a bunch of migrant workers to come from South Asian countries most of the time, and they will keep them in. Yeah, and all these migrant workers will reside in labor labor camps is what you call them. It's like these huge warehouses with like a bunch of small rooms and the migrant workers usually stay there. And that's what that is. I don't I'm not sure about the withholding passports anymore. I don't know if they still do that, but that was definitely an issue in like the early two thousands or like uh, to mid two thousands. Wow, I, I didn't know that. So thank you for dropping that knowledge, and I hope that passport bullshit has stopped because that's pretty manipulative and controlled. Yeah, I mean, actually, if you think about it, it, like the migrant work. So I think the issue is a lot of this, a lot of these, um, a lot of this workforce is also very gendered. So a lot of the research that we've seen is usually about the construction migrant workforce, but there's a lot of other like shady stuff that happens here with domestic. Uh, female workers when they like live in people's houses and do like domestic help for them so there's a lot more stuff that you know UAE doesn't talk about or like they're not able to regulate properly so I, I honestly don't know where how the situation is currently but I know that at one point in time it was pretty bad you know I can imagine especially people having like large live-in staffs you know drivers maids cooks all pairs mm -hmm. Like I feel like it's a lot of possibility for mess there. More holistically on your migration journey and all, and all the different places that you've lived, I guess in what ways do I, your identities become more or less salient depending on like where you are? I don't think I know how to answer that. What, what if I asked you that question? How would you answer that? I think I would say in somewhere like Asia being black would probably be more salient. I mean, I feel it's, it's pretty salient here in the U.S. But if I'm in New York, they see a big black guy every you know block. But if I'm in China, they don't. They're not going to see a lot of big black guys around. So I feel like that's going to make me more, you know, stand out and noticeable. So I'm going to be more cognizant of that. But I guess like thinking about it, like the intersectionality of your identities. Do you feel like being Indian in more, one place would be more of a standout or being a woman in one place is more of a standout I guess you're more worried about it I guess you're more worried about your citizenship in one place like yeah I'm Indian do you not want to share that in some places <laughs> oh I guess it's okay I can say when I was in the US I didn't I thought more about like my international student status a lot more. So I thought about my citizenship status quite a lot when I was there, especially when I was, you know, searching for internships and okay. jobs or whatever, or like, yeah, just like being an international student to beat in. There aren't a lot of you, so there aren't a lot of us around, so that definitely came up a good amount. 
Um, in India, I think my gender comes up like that's the most salient thing. I'm pretty privileged in terms of, uh, yeah, like my caste privilege and things like that is something that is something that I don't need to be aware of. Especially, I don't know if you're following the news about how how things are kind of blowing up in India right now because of Modi's uh, leadership. I'm not, I'm not following too closely, so can you give a brief update if you want to? Uh, it's kind of a messy. It's kind of a messy thing, so I don't want to get too much get into it because I'm afraid I might get it wrong. But yeah, because of uh, with the way under Modi's leadership, there have been a lot of. There's yeah, there's been a lot of like division along religious and caste lines, and it's been getting pretty messy. So I've been lucky in the sense that I am a Hindu upper caste woman. So because of that, like I'm just usually when I'm in India, I'm like usually mostly conscious of just my gender. Um, and in Australia, I think I haven't really thought about it. I guess I guess I would be conscious of me being like an Indian woman, like a thing of that. But like honestly, not even like I don't really care anymore like if I don't, I don't know how that comes across but like your experience of like being black in China is like definitely a legit experience and it's something that I will not be able to fully empathize with but I think it's it's kind of it's not the same like if you're India and if you're Indian in Australia like there are a good number of Indians around so if for whatever reason someone's like racist against you it's usually just a them problem and it's not a you problem mm. and we're more sort of living beto- between these countries like how, how do people interact like how, how are the food are things more expensive in different places i know you know dubai has a certain reputation but so does the u.s and i don't know how are things in australia comparison like the cost of living there i think melbourne was like almost as expensive as Boston was in terms of cost of living. But I can say that Melbourne's coffee is so much better than Boston's. Oh my God. I can imagine. I can, I could never understand Boston's obsession with Dunkin' Donuts. And I don't think I, I can to this date. Boston's very proud of their local homegrown thing. So that's just part of their culture. (laughs) All right. Dunkin' Donuts. Fine. But are you are you still like a cafe enthusiast? While Melbourne was open, did you sort of hop around Melbourne's cafe scene? Oh yeah, I forgot that we. I forgot that I was a huge thing, huge about that in <laughs> South America. But yeah, definitely in Melbourne, like that was a cafe culture is very much a thing in Melbourne. So I got to take full advantage of that. Uh, there was a cafe like down the road. I became friends with the baristas. It was all very cute until things shut down. <laughs> I'm so glad you got a taste of that experience. Yeah, it was nice. Are you able to do any of that now? Like, are cafes open in Boston? Um, yeah. So I live across, like, I live around the corner from a cafe Nero. So whenever I need a quick coffee, I do run there. But people are like inside studying with their masks off. So I'm just like, okay. And it's like full every time I go in there for a coffee. So kind of concerning because I'm like, do people really need to be there? But I guess people need a place to study, but. I feel like people are using the excuse of I'm eating to not have a mask on, but I I wouldn't do it personally, but I do, you know, I have a place to study and sort of work, so maybe I come from a place of privilege there, but some Mm -hmm. cafes are open, yeah, like, indoor dining is, like, a big point of contention right now, I feel like in Massachusetts, if it should be open or not. Yeah, or, 
Like I know here in Dubai, even though indoor dining is still open, they still go by like a lot of social distance rules. So they like space the tables away or they disinfect the tables after every person uses it. Is something like that happening in Boston? You know, it's definitely the same. There's definitely distance between tables and, you know, the, the disinfecting. But I feel like it's, you know, very nominal how places do it or like how the regulations can be. And if like, people are getting up and walking, you know, with their masks off, is that being enforced? Like, and I guess, I mean, also outdoor dining isn't really an option for Boston right now, yeah. considering the weather. <laughs> it's pretty brick. It's really, honestly, honestly, you'd be surprised. It's been like some 40, 50 days. I'm... I wonder how long they can hold out. Like where I live right now, I'm pretty sure they have outdoor dining extended till December 9th officially. So we'll see how that plays out. But they're oh. still trying. <laughs> People are out there with their Montclair coats on trying to have a meal. But <laughs> <laughs> looking back on your, you know, migration journey as a whole, is it safe to say that this life you've lived has impacted your career decisions and career motivations? would say I would think so like well I I don't know if my I don't know if like all of my international experience have directly contributed to me like wanting to be a lawyer but it has shaped the way I think about being a lawyer if that makes sense like the way I view the way I view issues I really try to make sure it comes from as much of an interdisciplinary perspective as I can offer or like if there are if there are like different you know jurisdictions that I'm studying about like what do I know about those different countries and how can I add that into my analysis so that's kind of the ways that I think my international experiences shaped it and I also think that to some extent on a very like philosophical le- level like lawyers are meant to be these people who they're sort of like the vanguards of society, like they fight for what's right, as cheesy as that sounds, but I really do believe in that. And I think a lot of a lot of the reason why I believe in that is because in all of the diff- different countries that I've lived and experienced in, most of the notable people in history who have accomplished those accomplished things in those countries were lawyers and they did a lot of cool things. So that's also quite inspiring in its own way. That. I feel like having you know, that legal framework just gives you credentials to sort of speak on these kind of issues. So, is yeah. international law like your focus? Do you see yourself going down that law, like going down that path, like human rights law, immigration law, something like that? Or you know, is it still up in the air? You're still trying to figure things out. I know it's only been a year in law school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I honestly don't know at all, Aiden. I think, well, one thing I do know is international law isn't really a thing. Uh, The UN doesn't really, like it's, the UN exists and it does its thing and so does like the International Court of Justice, but it's not like the most effective body in lawmaking. I think what I find, like the closest thing that I would want to get into for law and in like international related things would be commercial law actually, because Commercial law usually deals with uh, different, like companies in different countries trying to negotiate deals. So you have to deal with different law systems, like different legal systems in different countries. So I think that's pretty international in its own way. That definitely makes sense. And every, I feel like every business under the sun is trying to do business internationally right now. So th- definitely the right way to go. 
Yeah, I mean, like, even if you think about something like criminal law, there are so many international aspects to that. So it's something you can't really escape. And I think another interesting thing about just, like, international law in general is, like, extradition. I always, like, when I'm watching a show, I'm just like, oh, there's no extradition treaty there. They're going to escape. Like, I always find that so interesting. (laughs) 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 Hopefully, like, the CIA isn't watching me. I'm not trying to go anywhere crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. You know, I think there was, like, wasn't there some... Uh, I don't I don't really know it, but there was like some kind of documentary on Netflix that was talking about some billionaire Indian who scammed a bunch of people. I I don't know what it's called, but it I wouldn't be surprised if it dealt with stuff like that. Oh no, I, I can look into that. Right, so we're coming up on the end of the interview, so I'm going to ask you this very last question that I ask every single guest: Is your migration journey over? Do you do you see yourself returning to the UAE, maybe China again, back to the States, maybe live in India, more time in Australia, a new country with an undiscovered journey? I certainly don't think my migration, migration story is over. I don't know. I don't really have a plan for whether I want to go back to any of those countries that I lived in previously or, you know, whether I want to live in the UAE. But I know that it's not over. I think that's the closest answer I can give right now. Yeah, I'm, I wasn't probably expecting that answer, but I know that you're going to go on to great things and do some great, you're going to impact the world internationally. I, I, I know it. I know for a fact. Thank you, Aiden. That's, that's very kind of you. Oh, but is there anything that you want to shout out and promote or any questions that you want to ask me? Um... Yeah, I have a question for you. What does belonging mean to you, Aiden? Belonging? Yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. I guess belonging is being somewhere where you can bring your full authentic self to an environment and just be unashamedly you. And that's belonging. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that was a tough one. <laughs> no, that's a good answer. Yeah, no, no. This has been fun, Shruti. It's great catching up with you. I'm great sort of seeing what you've been up to and learning more about Australia, the UAE, and your your lived experiences around the world. So again, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of you and the work that you've been doing with this podcast. I just like just like following the stuff that you've been doing so to be able to be part of the ride in this small way means a lot so thank you for thinking of me of course i hope that you all learned a little bit more about the uae and some more perspectives on dubai but that was a really fun interview and it's always great speaking with shruti she's so smart and witty and she has such a fun air and energy to her that's always it's always great speaking with her and i'm glad i got to catch up And honestly, don't be surprised if she's the next Olivia Pope. I'm saying keep your eye on her. So I actually did my research on the Netflix show that she had mentioned, and it's called Bad Boy Billionaires India. And it premiered early on in October. It's available on Netflix. Not quite sure where it's available globally, but definitely in the US and likely the UAE, because she mentioned it. So it definitely looks pretty dope. It's an investigative docuseries exploring the greed, fraud, and corruption of India's most famous tycoons. So if you like extradition, fraud, India, this this could be the show for you. 
I'm probably going to check it out because it's right in my wheelhouse. So definitely let me know on social media or just hit me up via email if you tune in too. Remember, you can find me on social media at Factor on Twitter or Instagram. You can visit the website, pushpullfactor.com. And re- please remember to subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Give us a rating, preferably a five-star one. And, of course, have a good one.